Good morning. I can hardly contain my excitement to begin this new series with you. We're going to take the whole summer to focus on one chapter where the New Testament begins. And I know you don't want to wait any longer to get into this most exciting chapter with me. So I'm just going to start where it starts in Matthew 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon. Can't you feel the suspense? I see you in the back row. Don't fall asleep. This is exciting. It is, I promise you. These are never the sections in scripture when you are reading a read through the Bible in a year plan that you skim. I know you never skim a genealogy because they are awesome. They're awesome. Okay, maybe it's not the burning bush or the parting of the Red Sea today or feeding the 5,000. Anyone can talk about that. We are going to talk about the genealogy for eight weeks, and you guys are going to like it. That's not a threat. But why is it here? Why do these lists matter what could we learn from a genealogy? Well, looking at any family tree naturally brings about all kinds of questions, all kinds of emotions, don't they? I mean, you could have joy and pride looking on one side of your family tree, so proud of the people on this half that have accomplished all these amazing things and maybe you look on the other side of that tree or a branch of the tree and you're thinking, yeah, maybe not so much. <laughs> now, I typically don't think a whole lot about my family history. I don't think about genealogies. Um, some of you do. You're like card-carrying members of Ancestry.com and you love it. Great, that's fantastic. I don't really think about it too much, but this past week, our family, we have talked a little bit about it. Katie, my wife, her great aunt passed away, and she is 91 years old, the last living member of that generation, her grandfather's sister. And she lived in New York, and um, I never had the chance to meet her, but we were talking about our family and these kinds of things. And what was unique about her is that so many loved her, even though she was never married and never had any children. She had the space to love her family in a unique way many generations on. Now, for every special aunt, every special grandmother, or father, or cousin, who has won awards and has degrees hanging on the wall that we are proud. We know there are those who we wonder, yeah, I think I might want the cotton swab on this one to check the DNA on this branch, right? That is how we think. And if you don't know who that person is in your family, I think it's you. So you gotta be careful. 
When it comes to this, what qualifies somebody to be in a family? To your accomplishments, to your appearance. Only people that look a certain way are in my family. Is it your reputation? You know, we would hope that was the case. You know, you have applications to be in my family, but that's not true. That's not true for any family. That's not how family works. Family is your family. You don't get to pick them. You don't choose them. They are your family. There is no family of all overachievers. And what might be the most unbelievable thing of all of this is that when Matthew records the 46 individuals that we will read from Abraham to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, there's 2,000 years of history. This family, the most important family in the history of the world, it's no different. It is no different than your family or my family. And one thing we see when we start reading this, you don't get very far. You get a verse in when you see these kinds of things, that poor choices by people, regular people like you and me, do not prevent us from being in Jesus' family. The choices that you make do not prevent you from being in Jesus' family. Go back, Matthew 1, 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And Abraham is the father of Isaac. We can stop here for today because these individuals, Abraham, the father of Isaac, we're gonna camp right there with this family specifically. There's a couple of things I want you to realize about these genealogies before we go back to Genesis and learn a little bit more about who Abraham and his wife Sarah really are. You see, when we are reading these things, there's two genealogies about Jesus in the New Testament. We have this one here in Matthew, and we have another one in the book of Luke in the third chapter, and they are a little different. It's interesting when we look at them and Luke's genealogy is often linked with Mary because Luke talks a lot about Mary and Matthew talks a lot about Joseph. And here we see that it does not argue, Matthew doesn't argue that Joseph is Jesus' biological father. He is his adoptive father. He adopted Jesus into his home. He was not his biological dad. But what this tells us is that Jesus' legal and bloodline fulfill what the scriptures promised, that Jesus would be a descendant of King David. And this is critical. So that's one thing we see. The second thing we see here in Matthew, and in, you only have to go to the first line. There's a famous gentleman, Abraham, at the top, and it goes without saying, but I am going to say it. Although it is mostly males listed here, we know that Isaac didn't just have a father. Isaac had a mother too. Every one of these sons that are mentioned had a mother and a father. You can't think about Abraham without thinking about Sarah. 
Sarah is also in the genealogy of Jesus just as much as Abraham. And in this genealogy, it is fascinating because there are women that are mentioned. And in ancient genealogies, that was never the case. Women would never have been mentioned. And so the Bible wants us to see the ladies as much as the gentlemen. And so Sarah is just as much in the bloodline as Abraham. And in the culture, in the pagan culture, in the Jewish culture of the day, in the first century, there was little space for women in the church or for women in the culture, excuse me. But in the church, it's different. The church is different. God's family is different. It really is. It has always been a place where women are valued and lifted up just as much as men. I've heard it said that there were some Jewish men's prayers in the first century that said things like this, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They would pray that prayer. Isn't that crazy? They would do that. But in this surprising, in this shocking bloodline of Jesus, you know what we find? Gentiles, slaves, and women. You see, Jesus is not who we would expect him to be. And we do not have to go beyond one line in this genealogy to understand and to see something about God that we cannot miss. So who are Abraham and Sarah, the mother and father of Isaac? Who are these people that are at the top of this genealogy? The matriarch and patriarch of the most important family in world history. Who are these wonderful people? I need you to turn to Genesis 12. And we're going to learn about who are Abram and Sarai, because that is how we know them when we meet them. They have different names, Abram and Sarai in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family. Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord instructed and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household. So we see a few things here. When we first encounter this man, Abram, he's married to Sarai, who we just met. This man, when we first see him, is 75 years young. And um, his lovely wife, we learn, is 10 years younger than him. We learn that later when we read more. So she is a spry 65 when God says, I need you to leave everything. Leave it all. Now, if you came to me this week and said, Andrew, I need you and your family to move down the street, I'd say, no way. Moving is the worst. <laughs> We're not moving. 
You see, not only move, but give it all up. Go follow the Lord. That is a huge, huge ask. And there is really nothing special about Abram that makes him qualified to follow God, to be this patriarch. He lived in a foreign country to Israel, because Israel wasn't a country yet. But he was told to leave everything. In that place, they worshiped other gods. They didn't even worship the Lord. He didn't know the Lord. That seems like a curious person to ask, but he did nonetheless. And what's even stranger to me is this big ask is followed by an even bigger promise. In verse three, all, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed through you, Abraham and Sarah. All of them, not most of them, not some of them, all the families of the earth. That is quite the promise. That is pretty unbelievable. So there's all kinds of reasons why this seems unbelievable. On top of that, maybe the most important, if you're going to be the top of a genealogy, would be, I don't know, maybe you have some descendants That might be a big, important deal breaker there. They have no children. You see, this is unbelievable. Abraham has no kids. You don't have to go to medical school to know that a 75-year-old and a 65-year-old are coming along on midnight. If it's not midnight already, it's at least 11.59 p.m. and the time is out. It's over. It's beyond normal to have children at this age. So that's strike one. Strike two, we keep reading here in this passage about who Abram is. Even in this chapter, he just got this promise from God. And what does Abram do? He starts lying to cover his own tracks. He ends up in Egypt and he lies about his wife and says, that's my sister. And it gets a little weird really quickly, okay? I don't need to go any further than that, but it gets a little strange. So he's a liar. He worshiped other gods and he can't have any kids. Seems like a problem to me. But this is who we're talking about. As if Sarah needed any help or any reminders to know that her time-bearing children was up. I know she doesn't live or didn't live in the 21st century and didn't have Google, so I did a little Googling for you all that you can do later if you want. But according to Wikipedia, fantastic source, I found out that the oldest woman who has ever given birth naturally, who got pregnant naturally, was 67 years old. And that was this year. Isn't that crazy? In 2023 in China, a woman who is 67 years old got pregnant and had a baby. That is unbelievable. So maybe it is 1159 on their child rearing ages, okay? But there is maybe a chance. You're telling me there's a tiny chance, maybe. So who are these people? Let's go to Genesis 15 and keep learning about Abram and Sarai. Genesis 15, 1 says this. Some time later. 
I don't know if you heard, you know, what I was just talking about. We don't have time for later. <laughs> that means time is up. The clock is past midnight. Time has passed. We don't have any time to dilly-dally or to wait. The Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said, do not be afraid, Abram. I will protect you and your reward will be great. That makes sense that Abram would be afraid. He didn't have any other great qualifications to be in this position to begin with. And if you had all of the pressure of having this one promise that you and your family and your descendants are going to be a blessing to the entire earth, I would be afraid too. I would be a little concerned how this is going to play out. So they're afraid. And Abraham says, naturally, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? He's like, hello, I don't even have a son. Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. You know what God says? Nope, not true. No, your servant will not be your heir. In verse four, you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then he doubles down on this promise he's given to these unsuspecting people. The Lord took Abram outside and says, hey, look up into the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. That's crazy. Abraham is still trying to wrap his brain around this. Sarah is still trying to wrap her brain around this promise. It doesn't make sense. Maybe God needs an assist. I see God has this promise. He wants to make the basket, but we need to pass him the ball. Like he needs a little assist. He needs a little help trying to accomplish his will clearly. So in Genesis 16, there's this great idea. Sarah, Abram's wife. Oh yeah, we need to know that Sarah is Abram's wife. Don't forget that. The translation is very accurate. Abram's wife is Era, had not been able to bear children for him. She had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Huh, I see what's going on here. Now, before we go any further in this story, and some of you maybe already know what happens, I want to ask you something. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you were maybe a little willing to compromise just a little bit to get what you know was good, to get what you know God really wants for you. Maybe it's happiness or some kind of blessing or something somehow, some way. Would you ever be willing to make a little moral compromise to get this thing that you know is a good thing? If you're like me, I know you've done that. We do those kinds of things. That's what we do from time to time. Hopefully not all the time, but there are times when we make decisions. We make the shortcut. We 
peek at the person's paper. I know God wants me to have a good grade. Hey, look over here. God wants me to have this raise. God wants me to have this thing so I can cut this corner. I can do this thing. He wants me to be happy so I should have a relationship with this person. I can make these kind of little shortcuts, but is that really what God wants? I can think of all kinds of examples in my own life. One just comes to my mind is thinking about being a younger person in junior, senior high school, being at good old Noblesville High School, sitting on those wonderful oak benches uh, before school. And we had a certain group of people that we would hang around with every morning. And um, when the mixed company would come around, that was when you really wanted to be accepted and to be cool, of course. And um, as everybody is looking and insecure, it's a great opportunity to, you know, be funny, right? And so you want to be funny. You want to be accepted. And I can remember one morning particularly making fun of one kid that was in our group of friends. He was my friend and poking fun at something that he was insecure about because I thought it would make me cooler or whatever I thought. And you might think, well, Andrew, that's not a big deal. People do that kind of thing all the time. You're probably right. But how come I still remember that? I remember that. I remember that right now, that I made a compromise that I wish I had not made. What does a little compromise matter? Sarah, Abram, they're no different than you. They're no different than me. After all, all the earth, the whole earth, needs us to have a child. So Sarah says to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a child through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. So just when you thought, oh, Sarah's the bad person in the story, this was all her idea, not so fast. Abram didn't really put up too much objection to this plan, Abraham. Um, it wasn't his idea, but here we go. Abram, his wife is Sarah. Verse three says it again, Sarah Abram's wife, we were really supposed to know whose wife Sarah is, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. They knew the promise of God. They looked around and thought, we need to help God. We know he needs this. We can make this happen. And there really isn't a whole lot to add to what we read, to know how complicated, how messy this family, this relational situation got like that, right? It got crazy messy in a hurry. But what I see when I read this is there is nothing special about Abram and Sarai. Nothing special about this family. They didn't make the kinds of decisions that are worthy of being at the top of the most important family in the history of the world. They are more likely to be qualified to be the stars of a reality television show, by my estimation, than the top of the messianic bloodline. 
They're not only unworthy, but they're unable and unlikely to be a branch in this family tree. So how does it even go forward? How does this even happen? Well, go to Genesis 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, in Genesis 17, God renames Abraham, Abram Abraham. Regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. Sarah. God renames her. This may not seem like a huge deal, but it is. It's a big deal. And what does that even mean? Sarai means lady or princess of a family or of a small group. Now, I need to know how many of you out there have a little princess at home. Do we have any little princesses? In, I mean, the little princess could still be 60 or 50 or 40. I don't know. If you're the youngest princess in your house, I think every house has a little Sarai. You should. If you have a little girl in your home or an older, wonderful girl in your home, they are a little Sarai. It's biblical, okay? You treat them like a little princess. Every family has one. But what does this little change mean? You add the H on the end and it means something very different. It is not just the lady or princess of a family, but of a multitude. God is saying, that is your identity. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you and believe that it's going to come to pass. Just when Sarai was doing things that would disqualify her from being or receiving these promises, God says, I'm changing your name. I know who you are. You're Sarah. And many of us maybe know this because we've gotten the chance to read the rest of the story, but think about Abraham and Sarah, what they felt like, what they thought about, how ashamed they might have been. They did not know that poor choices do not prevent us from being in God's family. Maybe they thought something different. So God not only renames her. He reestablishes this covenant. I will bless her. I will give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly. She will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Naturally, if you're Abraham and you're having this conversation with the Lord, you're thinking this cannot be. It's past midnight. It doesn't work this way. We've already messed up And Abraham bows down to the ground and he laughs to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100? He's 100 by this point, 25 years after he initially left his country and followed God. And he thought, how could Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? This is impossible, unbelievable. And Abraham thinking only the way a person can think, thinks it is impossible, believes it is impossible, and says to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. You see, Abraham still didn't get it. He didn't know that God really means what he says. He thinks, well, somehow Ishmael, the child that he had with Hagar, 
will be the child of promise. He has no other frame of reference. He thinks that's the way it has to be. He says, well, Ishmael's going to be it. You know what God says? No, Sarah, your wife will give birth to a son for you and you will name him Isaac and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. You see, the name Isaac means laughter in Hebrew because this is truly funny. Like this is really funny when you think about this story. Abraham is laughing. So God's like, that's what I'm going to name him. Isaac, we're going to name him laughter. Is this really happening? A 90-year-old who has never had a child is going to. Unbelievable. Does it happen? Chapter 21, the Lord kept his word, did for Sarah exactly what he promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. I hope you are smiling because verse six says you would. It says all who hear about this will laugh with me. I hope you have that attitude as you read this story. It is truly unbelievable. It should make you smile when you hear the journey that they have been on. And when I thought about this laughter, I always thought this was a laughter of doubt, like, right, God, this would never happen. But I think the more and more I read it and read it aloud with you again, the laughter for Isaac is a laughter of joy. It is a laughter of disbelief. Like, can I believe this? No. And we are laughing with Abraham and Sarah that God would choose an unlikely, unworthy people to give them something they do not deserve. And you know what you call that? You call it grace. So who are Abraham and Sarah We are not to look at them and think only that they are unlikely, unworthy recipients or unlikely, unworthy branches. They are recipients of God's grace. That is who they are. That is what qualifies them to be at the top of this most important family. It's not because they've done anything special because we know that they haven't. It was all God. That's why God did it this way. It's to show us It's all him. It's all him. The entire bloodline, not just these two, we will see over and over and over again, failure after failure, moral compromise, decisions that you'd be like, what in the world? And it does not disqualify them from being in the family of Jesus. They did not deserve it at all. But that's the point 
That's what grace is. And so the whole genealogy of Jesus points us to the one who does that because that's kind of his thing is I'm here to give grace to people who do not deserve it. You are welcome in his family, even when you make poor choices, even when you've made moral compromises, because that has been going on in his family for thousands of years. And when we look at Abraham and Sarah, there is no reason that they deserved anything but there is one reason we can gather why God chose them. And it is this, they believed him. They believed God. That's their only qualification. In Genesis 15, six, a verse that is very significant in the New Testament when you read the apostle Paul, but Genesis 15, six says this, Abram believed God the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. They believed him. You see, that's why I'm not joking when I say the genealogy is exciting. Because from Genesis all the way to Revelation, even in the genealogies, you know what is spilling out of this book? The grace of God the gospel of Jesus, the things that are the most important things that we need to understand are right there if you look at it hard enough. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a member of the family of Jesus if you believe. It is right there. Isn't that amazing? I think that's unbelievable that you cannot go anywhere in the scriptures and miss what Jesus is about, and who he is for you and me. I think that's incredible, isn't it? I think that's amazing that poor choices don't prevent you and I from being in Jesus' family. That is a promise we need to think about a lot this week. We need to think about it a lot for the rest of our life, that there's nothing in your past. There's nothing that you can do in the future that could disqualify you from being in Jesus' family. If you believe in him, if you trust him at his word, it's not your resume. It's not what you do. It's not your name. It's not your morality. That was not true of Abraham or Sarah, and it's not true for you. It's do you trust Jesus? Tim Keller, a wonderful pastor who's written and spoken all kinds of things that we will probably have for many years. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple weeks ago. Um, And he summarized Abraham and Sarah's life in a way that I find just so helpful. Like so many things he said. He said, God came to them and said, I'm gonna send you. And Abraham said, well, where? And he said, I'll show you later. God came to him again. I'm going to give you land, Abraham. And he said, well, where? And he said, I'm going to show you later. God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a child. And they said, how? And he said, I'll show you later. 
We didn't get to this part of the story. After they have Isaac, he says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And they went, why God? And he said, I'll show you later. See, God is up to something. Even if we don't know what he's doing, he wants you to trust him, trust his son, and know that he is in charge of it all. And he is for you, no matter who you are or what you've done. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that there is nothing beyond the scope of your grace, that there is nothing that we could do that could disqualify us from trusting in your son, Jesus. We love you, Lord, and are so thankful that no matter what kind of battles we are waging in our flesh, in our hearts, in our minds, that we can know the outcome, that you are the winner, that even if we trip and fall in this life, we can trust in you today. May we be reminded that your gospel is true, that it is good, and it is everywhere when we look at the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.